and welcome to episode 31 of Cultural Capital, our special Melbourne International Film Festival preview edition. Two episodes ago, we talked about the films we want to see, and this episode, we're talking about the films we've seen. We'll be talking about City of Ghosts. We'll be sharing opinions about films that are coming up soon or also part of the myth. And we're going to begin with Daphne. My name's Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furs. And this is Cultural Capital. You were referred through the Metropolitan Police as part of their victim support scheme. I understand you were witness to a violent assault. Perhaps you could start by saying something about that, about what sort of emotions that brought up for you. What sort of emotions? Mm. Things affect us in ways we don't always expect. Do you think that it's true that we just matter, that we just die, and that's it? Or the whole heaven and hell thing, that those are basic two choices? Is that something you think about a lot? Sorry, you don't actually know me all my life or anything about me, do And are there people in your life who do, Daphne, who, who do know you? From the Myth catalogue, Daphne, directed by Peter Mackey Burns, it's his first film, uh, is about a woman named Daphne. She's 31, flippant, cynical and intelligent. Her daily life of casual work, casual sex and not-so-casual boozing suits her just fine until an unwelcome encounter unexpectedly pushes her over the edge. Compared by many critics to Kenneth Lonergan's Margaret, although amongst us three, um, not like it at all, yeah, not um, this at all. nuanced feature walks between comedy and drama with Emily Beecham unafraid to pull punches in the title role, making Daphne a refreshing portrait of contemporary womanhood in contemporary London. Now, this is a character study more than like a plot-driven drama, um, but Anders, what did you think of it? Yeah, I really, really liked this film a lot, actually. You're right, it is a character study, apart from this quite shocking or comparatively shocking event that happens towards the beginning of the film, uh, not much else really happens, although there is it, it there is plenty of progression, but the focus really is on this character of Daphne, a, um, well, she's um, she's a 30, early in her early 30s, and I thought that... Um, there was this key scene where someone asked for her age and she's like, oh, I'm 20, uh, oh, 31. Uh, mm. So she had to sort of check herself there. So the film is full of little moments like that that sort of tell you just a little bit about herself and uh, how she sees herself. I thought Emily Beecham was really, really good as this character who's not entirely likeable, which is the point, I think, of the film. You know, she acts in kind of interesting, maybe unexpected ways. If you were expecting an easily likeable protagonist, um, she's not it, but it's all the more interesting for it. And I was won over by her character in the end, actually, I've got to say. I was very much on Team Daphne. Were you, Andy? Uh, less so. Um, I thought there was a lot to like about it, and I think it was a re- she was a really interesting subject, given that she is experiencing a lot of stress and anxiety, as I imagine a lot of people living in London, which we see a lot of, is, and she does the British, typical British thing of not really talking about her feelings, but then occasionally those kind of come out like in those little moments like you were suggesting. Yeah. And that is a difficult thing to render on screen because you're given so little information to go on. You have to start 
putting aside any concept of what can I relate to this person? Do I want to hang out with this person? And trying to understand the way she is communicating and she's talking or talking around things or not talking about things at all or acting in these fairly self-destructive ways. I don't know, I struggled for the first part to, to appreciate it. I love the moment, the really key dramatic moment that you just mentioned there. That just kind of came out of nowhere and had my hand over my mouth. But then we, we go back to this, this really strange tenor of the film. I thought there was a lot of visual inventiveness happening here. There's a lot of mirrors yeah. and reflections and perspectives and seeing her through windows and through... Um, vases and things and like this. And also a lot of sort of scenes of her walking through London, shot from a distance. Uh, she doesn't necessarily appear lonely, but she's definitely a sort of a figure who sort of embodies urban solitude. I guess yeah. she lives alone apart from her relationship with her. She has a sort of strained relationship with her mother. It doesn't really suggest that she has any deep relationships with people. Uh, well, no, she does. She does have a couple. Um, but she is seen a lot from a distance alone, which I thought was interesting. I really liked the opening credits of this film. As you mentioned, there's a lot of shots of her, of Emily Beecham's face, to kind of situate Daphne in this, you know, big, messy city, saying that, you know, it, might, it must be hard for anyone, let alone someone with, with anxiety like Daphne, to find their way and find their footing. You know, the opening credits have are this incredible, really, really beautiful, she's going down an escalator and there's this striated mirror pattern on the wall and so you kind of, you never see see her face in full and it's you know it's kind of a tried and true cinematic trope to do this and to introduce a character like this but I thought it was really really beautiful um we're just looking before the song at the time is a great song like kind of I don't know kind of jazzy um a little bit um there's a lot of intimate warm music yeah a song called is this the time by Jermaine Douglas it was yeah, it was really great. It was really quite perfect. And then, so she's going down this ex- escalator. You don't see her. The first time you see her in full, I think, is in a mirror as well. And that's quite comforting when you finally get to see her. And then she walks through London and then again walks up a staircase and is again, her face is chopped up through this this banister. And so there's a lot of that going on. So I thought the opening credits were really beautiful. But then the film from there, it kind of jarred me. Like there's this overlay dialogue which we figure out is Daphne having a conversation with her old friend, I think, who she doesn't see all that often, Mm. played over Daphne walking alone in a crowd. And I felt like after this beautiful opening sequence where I was really invested in the film, it just didn't work. You know, you didn't know where this dialogue was coming from. There was a moment where you were kind of, you know, I, I almost thought it was two women talking about this woman that we were seeing on the screen not that it was a conversation connected to her and so from there I was kind of put off in a film where it's so important that you do like her that moment just just was really yeah kind of other people like her and I'm I was struggling to empathize with why they would because she is so difficult well, that's and she gives so little that I was reading in some reviews uh, there were some reviews that were just so treated Daphne atrociously, I thought, and said, she's a horrible person. There was one review I read. It must have been really hard for Emily Beecham to play this character because you have to embody a person and it must have been really hard for her to find any good at all. And I thought that was, you know, really, really harsh because the point of the film is that Daphne struggles and I feel like we do come to understand why towards the end or, you know, towards the middle. But there, you know, you know, 
reviews saying things like, I don't know why all of these men are just throwing themselves all over Daphne and in falling in love with her because she's so awful. And I just thought, well, you know, film is, is full of women falling in love with men who are just complete assholes to well, them yeah, exactly. and do nothing at all nice exactly. and are just like – you know, give people nothing and yet women are so in love with them. And so why are all of these male reviewers writing about a a Mm. female character and they can't believe that that's Mm. happening? That just, that seemed like really, really not a good kind of sign Mm. in those reviews to me. I completely agree. And also this is what makes a film interesting to me is, is this idea that it's a character story about this woman. She is difficult, but by the end of the film, I was on Team Daphne and And then I was sort of thinking about it in retrospect, and I don't know how difficult she really is. So her mother is recovering from cancer treatment, and as part of this, she's she's all into holistic medicine and, you know, mindfulness and alternative ways of dealing with this. Daphne is very much confronted by that, doesn't really approve, doesn't believe in it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I did find some of the, some of the like script writing and the ways in which Daphne was painted as an awful person. And then her gradual transition to being a little bit kinder and warmer was, (laughs) was not super well done. Like at the beginning, kind of the way that people blew up around her, I found completely over the top. I didn't seem real to me. That, that people might respond to her so dramatically mm. um, and that her behaviour, yeah, was not all that bad to justify this, this script writing that said, oh, well, you know, X equals Y. It just didn't, didn't work for me. Um, and then there were a couple of other moments um, that, that didn't really work. Something I wrote down, David, this, you know, um, kind of wannabe boyfriend says – why are you pissed? It's like outside a club where he said something to offend her and so she runs out. He says, why are you pissed? And she says, don't try and psychoanalyze me. And I was just like, he wasn't. If you're asking why you're pissed, that doesn't equal psychoanalysis. Like, you know, kind of make this a little bit bit better. I don't know. I I really enjoyed this movie overall, I've got to say. Okay. I Yeah, I, I didn't really – I had no idea what to expect from it. I thought it was well-made, really interesting visual choices that we've – discussed yeah and musical choices as well and musical Um, choices and also i think just the idea of setting yourself a challenge to let's create a character study Mm. around someone who's quite unlikable and see if we can soften them up a bit maybe i don't know let's see i mean that's an interesting idea for a movie so yeah i would recommend it Andy, anything else? Yeah, I thought there were a lot of lazy um, examples of quirks. Mm-hmm. Her, her, the use of Slavov Zizek just kind of turned out that was like <laughs> oh not explored. God. There was yeah. the use of 80s hip hop that was not really explored. There were these things that just kind of seemed like affectations rather yeah, than actual, right. actually adding to any character. She depth. only mentions, like that was in the blurb, I think, or in, you know, one of the kind of maybe the IMDb profile was that she's a 31 year old who reads Zizek. But she yeah, only once. mentions him once. Yeah, that's purely done just to correct somebody's pronunciation of his name. Yeah, and there's so, this bit that I messaged you guys. She's talking to someone and she says, whenever I do whenever I do coke, I think of Freud. And then this is what an example. They're talking about love and she says something about Freud and he says, so you don't believe in love. And that, I mean, that, that from getting from that, like, the proposition to the conclusion didn't make sense to me. But, yeah, that she's, yes, you're right, Andy. I don't know if they're 
very well. Yeah, done. I don't really feel like it's adding to anything. And also, I thought there was quite a lot of um, this selfishness. It didn't seem very important. Like it seemed a lot of pointlessness. I mean, we're giving a little bit of background to her, but it doesn't really become. It doesn't really add up to anything. Mm. I felt there was um, a lot of barriers going on, and I understand that this, this is part of like a British character thing of not really expressing yourself and expressing yourself through actions rather than words. And these are actions that come out when you're getting drunk or when you're in, you know being standoffish with people. And I understand that that's quite an interesting thing when when it's rendered by somebody like Emily Beecham. But I think it's still quite a lot to ask, particularly when you've got a lot of other things going on at MIF. You might not have the patience for somebody like this. Right. Well, it's it's selling quite well, I think, or one of the sessions is, is well, selling we, yeah, fast. Yeah, the director so, is the guest of the festival. Oh, is oh, he? So cool. there will be some Q&A options there. Okay. I, his name sounded familiar. This is his first film, but he's done other stuff, has he not? He's or? done shorts. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's, this is his first feature, I understand. Yeah. Um, anyway, Andy and I were also very excited because the closing credits song is uh, a Lou Reed song. Mm, I found a reason. Yeah, I do think the lyrics are a bit on the nose there. We haven't even mentioned the Ryan Gosling scene, which may well be certainly my favourite scene of the entire film. Oh, yeah, she gets really drunk and she buys some fried chicken. It's actually quite hilarious. We shouldn't spoil any more than that, I think. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Ryan Gosling is involved. It suddenly just came out of nowhere, though, so you loved it. Yeah, heart. I'm just giving a big heart shout-out to Ryan Gosling. The men and women of Raqqa's being slaughtered silently are real journalistic heroes. They work in secret and under constant threat, reporting on the depredations of ISIS in their home city. Some have fled in fear for their own lives. Even in exile, they are in no way safe. So next up is the documentary City of Ghosts. Myth bills this in the following way. With the award-winning Cartel Land screening at Myth in 2015, Matthew Heineman put his own life on the line to bring audiences an object lesson in 21st century journalism. His new film focuses on journalists whose courage under fire comes at far greater cost. The anonymous activist of Raqqa is being slaughtered silently in the heartland of ISIS's self-declared caliphate. City of Ghosts is an urgent, deeply personal, real-world thriller about the world's most crucial fight against misinformation. Myth warn that the film contains images of real killings. Andy Hazel, what did you make of City of Ghosts? Uh, This is one of the films that I singled out a couple of episodes ago as a film that I was really looking forward to seeing. So when the option came up to be able to see this and before the festival began, I was like, this is fantastic. I was really excited because I have seen um, Cartel Land and I thought that was a really, really interesting way of exploring this sort of contentious issue, but from a very non-partisan way, which I thought was really unusual for an American, for a filmmaker to go in and then just be able to look at what's happening to people in these states of extreme stress and traumatic brutality. And this is something that he repeats again with City of Ghosts. It's very interesting to begin with because it's bookended by an award ceremony by the International Press Freedom Association, in which this group of, of Raqqa is being slaughtered silently, are being awarded. And so we get the uh, sort of... possibly from the audience's perspective like we see these people in an award ceremony they're being asked to smile in photographs they're being congratulating this sort of thing and then we see why asking these guys to smile for a photograph is actually kind of a a really (laughs) extraordinarily complicated request I suppose yeah Yeah, I thought this was really well put together I thought it was a lot of focus just on the people you get to really get to know which is a really really difficult thing to overcome as a journalist when you're reporting on something like this is to actually get personalities into this story because it's often so dwarfed by actions and by grainy footage 
and this is usually the sort of way that we end up learning about these places. So to actually see Raqqa as it is or as it was in 2014, 2016 was one of my favourite things about this, was just getting to see this culture and see them. There were enough moments of levity, I thought, to make it not quite as bleak as perhaps we will make it sound. There were some nice moments in Berlin with snow, there was some dancing, mm. there was a few other things like that. Mm. So there was really good opportunities to see these people in non-stressful situations. Mm. Did you, what did you make of it, Anders? I agree. I, it was quite, it's quite a challenging and harrowing film to watch. Speaking of grainy footage, you know what really struck me was because we see first-hand ISIS propaganda videos of executions and I was stunned at the high level of production values that they put into these videos with synchronised shots and editing and, you know, pulsing music and then you see people getting executed. I mean, yeah. it's horrific. Well, it's really important to their profile, yeah. isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, cause and I was- it's shocking to see that. Through and the, the the absolute oh god, there's so many examples that you can mention, but this horrible scene where we see these two men watching one of these videos, where which is the execution of their father, mm. and you see them sort of you see you see the video on a computer screen, you see them reacting in real time to watching it. That was quite well, I mean confronting. historically propaganda has been so important to all authoritarian mm. regimes yeah. um, and regimes of this nature you know that have to kind of lie and present this this idea you know and if they're not as although obviously they're terrifying but if they're not as terrifying as they want to be seen they have to create this image so so you know I just see that as an extension of, of that I suppose mm. um, I find it fascinating because I've been researching about this you know as part of our masters of journalism degrees um, and looking at the way ISIS have, have used this but I've never actually been able to find these videos before because I've read about them and I've read people's responses to them and I've seen the Americans did their own version on social media to try and discourage people from going to ISIS which was wow. remarkably pathetic when you look at it in comparison to the the production values that they're pulling out in these videos oh, it, it, it's it, you can't even describe it I mean yeah. you, it's just the the act of seeing them. Well, yeah, um, and that's part of the whole thing is like, yeah. why bother playing a computer game when you can go and live it? Well, yeah. exactly. Well, that's yeah. what they say. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. That, that was fascinating. I that was interesting. And then also, I mean, disturbing images of, you know, a four-year-old kid um, beheading his teddy bear. That was, mm. that was like shocking to me because yeah. that was right after a, a sequence where they say, you know, ISIS... They get their power by by getting kids on their side, yeah, yeah. and they indoctrinate children. And then there's this horrific shot where you know you see all of these children in lines obeying orders, and you can see that they're becoming you know the next. But it's it's not just to follow orders; it's to commit these these atrocities. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I I've, I thought so. I thought the the film worked on on a couple of levels um, in terms of being a documentary because you learn a lot about about the situation in Syria. I mean, if you only have sort of a vague idea of the geopolitical machinations around it, you don't really know why is Raqqa so important? Why? What does it mean when ISIS takes over a town? We get a bit of that. And then we also see specifically this story of these this handful of people who start up this citizen journalism project as a way of resisting and then the sort of high toll it takes on them. Mm. Um, so I thought it was interesting from those two perspectives and really really revealing. What yeah. did you think, Eloise? There's this incredible line where one of the three men, so it focuses on three men mainly to, to illustrate the effects of this new regime. One of the men says, they executed our brother and our father so that we'd stop, but we're going to continue. 
And he kind of pauses before he says that, but it's a really difficult decision for him to decide, do I stop so that my family stops being murdered or do I continue because I can see that this is a larger issue? And that, to me, that moment was stunning because I just thought, yes, obviously, this is, this is horrific. I don't know, I'm a little bit torn on this because it's, it's incredible and it's harrowing and it's really, really hard to take. But you see it through these three men who I feel like are put into this film and obviously it's a documentary based in a humanitarian concern so having three figures there as your main figures is is fine and makes sense in that way but they they kind of represent the oppressed syrian people in a way yeah maybe i have less knowledge just just coming to this film than you do anders but i felt like it didn't really offer all that much background or larger scope on the situation um, on Syria, on the history of Raqqa. Um, I mean, it talks about how the Raqqa was under oppressed under this regime for 40 years and then they were liberated and then all of a sudden ISIS came oh, in and, and it was even worse and that was, you know, quite horrific. That's just a really brief yeah. few minutes yeah, and then yeah, after yeah. that you just get this, this sure. other focus. And, sure. and it's not to say that this is not a legitimate focus. Perhaps it is. Perhaps I'm being unfair I don't know. There was just something about yeah. it that was very documentary-like to me, and I think the music didn't help. I wrote, I just hated the music. Basically, it was it sounded really, really generic to me, and I don't think it helped the construction. Yeah, I don't think it needed it. Did it? I mean, yeah. And uh, yeah. Perhaps that to me made it a bit more, you know, kind of like a less fulfilling um, historical artefact and uh, educational, not that it's just educational, that's the wrong word, or informative thing rather than really yeah. great, you know, imperative piece of work. I think you. I agree with you that you, yeah, that, I mean, the context and the historical precedent, uh, you know, the reason this happens isn't really delved into. But I guess what I was saying was what you do get is a real sense of what it's like to be in that environment when ISIS rolls into town. Yeah, and, yeah. And it gives you a real very, sense. But like, also you know. it's like we will never know what that's like. You know, it kind of paints it and it says, yes, this is – imagine like, being yeah. someone who is worried about dying and maybe would prefer to die every single minute of every single day for years – Imagine what that's like. And, of course, we can't. But, yes, saying it out loud and having it here and having these people expressing it was so powerful. Yeah, and I thought it was really interesting because we're mainly looking at the work of citizen journalists and that's often very boring, particularly in this scenario. So we're seeing them outside of, uh, of Raqqa when they had to leave. They went to Gazantep in, uh, in Turkey and then to Berlin. And essentially the work is monitoring social media, maybe making emails or making phone calls. And so to be able to liven that up is really, really useful to be able to have that footage to be able to get, uh, to mm. see it. And this is one thing that I thought was a little weak in it was because the time frames were quite difficult to follow because we would get a few like scenes of the particular guy called uh, Naji Jeff, who's like one of the, the key orchestrators. And then um, he, he is assassinated later. And then we kind of see the emotional response to that. We were never, we can't really empathize with him because we, uh, we, don't, we never really got to introduced to him beyond a couple of sentences. So when Hamoud and Hassam and Muhammad, who are the main three protagonists, uh, are starting to like you know making these sorts of life and death decisions, and they're facing the fact that they're going to be hunted probably for the rest of their lives. The, seeing that effect on them and the cumulative impact mm. of the anxiety, I think, is makes it the more, is probably possibly even more powerful than a lot of the mm. news footage that they they got. I mean, the, they got. the final shot is yeah. just um, but speaks exactly to that. It's yeah, it's just sort of um, yeah. So I, I, yeah, I thought that that worked quite well. 
Mm. Um, I think Hamoud is particularly a really fantastic, fascinating subject because we do get to know him a little bit, possibly more than the others. I yeah, have finding it difficult to kind of identify which of the three was which, but but yeah, there is. I, it is great. You kind of do get this connection to the three of them and want to find out what they're saying. Each mm. And now it needs to be added to now that Rucker has been reclaimed yeah. as of last month. Officially. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I think in terms of the footage of Rucker, I think that this is done really, really well. Like an extraordinary intelligence edited in. Maybe if the footage is not of a great quality, the camera will often go into these kind of sequences where it speeds up, um, accelerates the footage in this way to perhaps mirror a state of acceleration that war brings to the world or to mirror a sense of inertia um, and to evoke that in the in the audience. And we'll do that quite often. That happens maybe more towards the beginning and then and then it kind of becomes slower. As you say, mm. Andy, you know, the time frame becomes harder to, to follow. Um, but that at the beginning I thought was, was really well done and there's – Often moments in in documentaries like this or just in online footage where I find myself in a really uncomfortable state watching this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I didn't necessarily feel that in this in this case because I felt like everything was pretty essential. Yeah, we're given such fidelity to their experience that often I think we hear about events then we watch them responding to events on a video screen of some sort and this throws these timelines mm. a little a, a bit of scant and and i did appreciate how it did sort of gesture to how the world outside of that situation responds to them so uh, as you said like this sort of yeah that moment where they're posing for photos in new york and the photographer is like oh smile why don't you lighten up a bit or whatever and it's like well so we get a real so we get we get a real insight into why yeah and then and then late in the film where we see german neo-nazis protesting you know anti-refugee mm. protests as well so it's just it's interesting that it, he also includes elements of that stuff to connect this film into you know the media narratives that we as western media consumers are probably more plugged into on mm. a day-to-day basis i guess yeah yeah, yeah. totally agree so anyway, yeah recommended yeah well really important i think and would be devastating to see but i think is is essential for anyone living in the world today agreed hark it's the beat that tells you that it's time to open your calendar and find out what's happening in the moment screen scene if the Melbourne International Film Festival is in your bag, there are still plenty of things worth checking out around Melbourne this fortnight. While some will be at the MIF opening night party on Thursday, August 3rd, the Hitchcock double bill over the Astro may interest some, Vertigo and Rear Window. Also, a couple of nights later, you can catch Björk's Biophilia live in a rare screening on Saturday, August 5th. And on the following night, there's a double bill of Jurassic Park and Jurassic World. Over at Acme, Brian Cox's odd couple comedy The Carer, starring Coco Koenig and Brian Cox himself, is screening from August 4th to 15th. And finally, the Scandinavian Film Festival finishes on August 2nd, and there's still plenty to see there, such as A Conspiracy of Faith, The King's Choice, and the closing night film, A Hustler's Diary. tanks have stopped. Why? Why waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel?
There are 400,000 men on this beach. Now to the final section of the podcast, I was thinking it would be remiss of us to let Dunkirk pass without at least some sort of comment. And so I think I'll begin my little brief synopsis and uh, review of it by just sharing the story that when I was given a double pass to the media screening of Dunkirk at IMAX in 70mm, I literally could not find anyone who would take my other ticket. And I was really confused <laughs> as to why. Like, what, what is it about Christopher Nolan and this movie that was so off people's radars or just not interesting anybody? So can I ask asking you guys why you were just like, it's not my bag? Well, Andy, yes, offered it to me and I just, it was never, I don't know, I just, uh, war films, not really into it in general and I just kind of thought I'm a bit busy, blah, blah, blah. And then I began thinking and I did actually on the, the day before I said, Andy, wait, I'll be, your, I'll be your date and Andy had already found someone so I couldn't do no. it. But that was the the point where I was like, 70 millimeter at IMAX this is perhaps an historical moment but you know too late by that point mm, yeah um, anyway I feel like seeing it in the, in the format and with the experience of the IMAX would have been perhaps more thrilling than the film itself yeah okay. that's, that's the way to do it I'm mm. um, I mean I don't know Christopher Nolan he, he has passionate supporters which is great I like some of his films I don't like others of his films I, I I mean, there's so many movies that are happening right now. <laughs> yeah, I, just, so I had to, I had to, to, I mean, I do want to get to it and I will get to it. And I would like to see it in 70 mil as well. In, interesting controversy. Yes, there's been a lot of them, people writing about uh, this. Refusing to uh, offer it to the Asta. Oh, that's, that's Palace, too, sorry. I was thinking, uh, that, sorry, yes. The, I was just Palace thinking, it's like the 70 mil thing, you can literally see it in four or five different versions, I think, in America mm. now. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, Roadshow refused to um, screen it at the Astra, I believe, which is a Palace-owned yes. cinema. But I yes. think that that was the, the way it went. Yeah, so that was interesting. But there's still plenty of cinemas you can see it on 70 mil, including my local, the... Sun Theatre in Yarraville. Oh, yes, of course. That's right. What did you make of it, Andy? Well, okay, so I had been looking forward to this for quite a while. I mean, a lot of people said, we'll, we'll maybe go to this for a lot of different reasons. I mean, I can understand. I think after Interstellar, he got a lot of flack. I really liked Interstellar. I'm right. just going to go on public record and say okay, I loved it. Yeah, see, so a lot of people... <laughs> You know, we're going, okay, he's going to do whatever it takes to get that Oscar nomination. He thinks he was denied to him. There's the entire, like, people thought he should get the one for A Dark Knight. What's your favourite Christopher Nolan movie? I, uh, I don't know. I think Inception still, but I'm, yeah, okay. I don't I really know. Like I find something to like in all of them. I think Memento is astonishing. I even think Following, his very first one, is really interesting. Yeah, use yeah, of a, Pretty much a tiny, movie. almost a zero budget. Even Somnia has got a lot of great things going for him. People often forget that one. Oh, my God, Al Pacino. Yeah. Yeah, and Robin Williams. <laughs> Robin yeah, Williams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, God, yeah. Yeah, and that, that's that's phenomenal. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I think there's a lot of interesting stuff, but I also think that like the fandom, I think is possibly his the thing that puts off the Turn most off. people mm. is that the, he seems to attract this particular breed of when did the that begin? That, I like think that's a new the Dark thing. Knight. Do you reckon? Do you reckon it's Batman related? No. No, I, I think it's around before Maybe it's then. Batman, like, post-Batman cult related. I think it might have begun with the I understand Memento and you don't crowd, <laughs> which <laughs> I assume was largely <laughs> male. Right, <laughs> going, right. Going judging by social media. And I think it only snowballed with Batman and then mm. the, oh, my God, Inception is the greatest film of all time. And I'm to say, um, the first ten minutes of The Dark Knight, I love and That's my favourite thing, Christopher Nolan. Really? Ever. Right, okay, yeah. cool. Uh, so anyway, to Dunkirk. Anyway, so this yes. is a particularly interesting because I feel like he actually listened to every single bit of criticism that Interstellar got. 
which is like it was overly convoluted, it was too long, you, you had a humongous budget that you probably didn't need to be able to tell the story you wanted to, you insisted on going down this rabbit hole of quantum physics and then explaining it in a way that really didn't Mars satisfy. Mars is at the centre of the... Yeah, so I yeah. think, so Dunkirk, very short, 106 minutes, like for Nolan, that's remarkably pithy. He seems to take the one thing that he was best at, which is entwining various storylines and making it understandable. Mm. And this time he seems to be really focused. It seems like he's written the words, you are a cold film director, which is like an allegation he gets a lot and put it right above his computer screen because it feels like this is purely, a, it's all done to a heightened emotional payoff that you get at the end. So there's this amazing mix of like poetic vision and then tension. This is the key thing is that Hans Zimmer hasn't gone for the wah thing that he's mostly famous for. And this time it's a lot of ticking clocks. There's um, oh, a lot yeah. of the, the sound design is mixed in with the score. You get a few Elgarish flourishes at emotional payoff moments. Uh, actually, I should probably even begin by saying, so there's three stories going on here. There's, um, and we get each of them told at the beginning. There's like on the mole, which is the beach, where we get one week, we get one hour in the plane with Tom Hardy's pilot, and we get one day in the um, life of the guy played by Mark Rylance and his son and his son's friend who take a boat out to help some. So does that mean that the the time designation of each of these stories is very confusing because uh, no, they we get, don't correlate? No, they do. They entwine really well, but they also, you also have the heads up. You get, and it is a little confusing like, coming from it cold because you just mm. get one, the mole, one week, and you're like, okay. And uh, there's also like a bit of uh, super text at the beginning that just gives you a bit of a setup, which I don't think you needed actually. I was quite a bit disappointed you even went for that. But I think other people seem to like not, not know about Dunkirk or what it is. I guess maybe for American audiences who don't know, have never heard about this before, um, then it's maybe very important. But I thought, I thought it was very daring. I thought it was quite low key. It was just very focused on faces. It was totally focused on the story. It eschewed all of the crazy, like, look at me dynamics that he's had in the past on some of his films, like the prestige as magic trick. The sort of stuff you know that annoyed as many people as I think it attracted. Um, I can understand why people don't need to see another World War II movie, particularly one that is about defeat and surrender rather than victory. Why not? Defeat and surrender are like yeah, seem to they're, me they're, the more important stories to tell. Yeah, but I think it's a harder sell if you're looking at mm. fiction. Yeah, I, but, but after come and see, do you do oh you ever yeah. need to make another war movie again? That's that a, is my yeah. favorite. You know grueling way war film I could say yeah I feel like Andy you said that maybe Nolan has listened to all of the criticisms about all of his previous films and learnt from them but given what reading I've done on Dunkirk perhaps the only criticism that he didn't take on and I have no problem with this because this is like something that I will defend until the day I die about Interstellar the sound mixing Mm. so apparently there's still a lot of um you know, dialogue that is that is muffled out by yeah. sound effects in Dunkirk, which are f- it's a fucking war. Of well, course, there would be well, right. Exactly. Like, and I'm um, like, Interstellar, they're in space for Christ's sake. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that, that anyway. was, this is actually the strongest <laughs> thing. The sound design was actually my favourite thing in this entire yeah. movie because you get a lot of hushed conversations, then bang, a gunshot or a bomb or a torpedo. I or have heard this criticism actually coming from an not not wholly perhaps. I mean, some I'm sure. N- but I did see a few American people on Twitter saying that the di- some of the dialogue, the accents were um, unintelligible. Mm, and I'm okay. like, well, you know, if it's a strong Scottish or strong British yeah, accent. Yeah, there's a, um, yeah, there's a few Northern British accents and a Scottish yeah, couple of Scottish um, ones. Then, you know, th- that might have been difficult for them. There should have been subtitles. But there's very little dialogue at all. It's almost entirely yeah, visually well, driven, yeah, which exactly. is another I one. Mean, of the dialogue's not really the point of the film, is it? Yeah. I've heard it's very loud. Um, it, well, I think I got a different mix in IMAX. I think it would okay. be quite a different mix if you're seeing mm. it somewhere else. Mm. But I would recommend it. 
definitely. Cool. I think it's right up there. It's one of the best movies of the year so far. Okay. Maybe, I don't know, I did say to Andy and Anders that I wanted to perhaps link City of Ghosts with Dunkirk, which I don't necessarily know that I really do want to do, but I was just thinking about war movies and war footage. And when I was watching City of Ghosts and thinking about that accelerated footage, I was thinking about Paul Virilio. 15 years ago, he wrote about how war itself is becoming quite cinematic, I think, because it's, it's more dispersed and there are more like maybe moments of grandeur rather than it just being really, really boring as World yeah, War One. was, interesting. for example. I yeah. can't believe I just said that, by the way. Anyway, pretend I was being more sensitive. Um, but, but yeah, I, and, I, and how maybe we don't need war movies anymore because we've got the news, mm-hmm. which shows us moments of war and moments of these kind of moments of chaos. And I don't really know where I'm going with this, right, but I'm no. like, maybe this is – Maybe this can help express my distaste for fictional war, well, not fictional, but you know, semi-fictional right, biopic war films. Yeah, I was thinking of that while we were watching City of mm. Ghosts, thinking that pretty much ISIS won't kill anyone unless there's a camera there. Yeah, but on the right. other hand, for the, for people like Mahmoud and Hassan from the film, they're they're going to get wiped out in a very non-cinematic way. Someone's just going to stab them or shoot them in the head. There's not going to be like a bomb put under a car or anything that we might be used to when it comes mm. to assassinating people from a distance. They're quite happy to get their hands dirty. Which I guess you know is cinematic in a way because I'd probably be doing it with a gun mm. in one hand and an iPhone in the other. Well, it doesn't one of them say that? Yeah, like the most the powerful weapon in the world is camera, which yeah. means that the person behind the camera is more pow- a more powerful soldier than a soldier with a gun. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You, no, that, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So yeah, that was where ISIS was spending, was spending more time and trying to recruit more people who knew about media than knew how yeah. to fire guns because that's much easier to teach. It's quite interesting that we are looking at those two films on this podcast today. That's mm. all. Yeah, That's yeah. No, it's interesting. Um, Anders, you had a film to talk about that is screening at MIF, I understand, that we haven't seen. Yes, I would like to mention the documentary Chavela, which is playing at MIF in their music on film section. So this is a portrait of the legendary Mexican singer Chavela Vajas. She... Sorry, can you just say that again? Chavela Vajas. Thank you. She um, <laughs> basically she uh, you know she was a revolutionary figure in Mexican music in this particular style of ranchero singing, which is traditionally very hyper masculine. Uh, it was sort of like a, a place for for men to let their emotions run dry, essentially. And she came along and was like, well, you know, I'm a woman, I can do this too. And um, the response was sort of this adulation from the Mexican public. What's interesting is there's a few couple of interesting things about this film that I want to point out. The first is at one point someone says a Mexican culture, I am paraphrasing here, Mexican culture is so hypocritical they see Chavela was a very transgressive figure. She was a lesbian. She had a lot of. She was a woman, a massive womanizer. She, I mean, there's interviewees who say that she slept with the wives and girlfriends of like all of Mexican high society <laughs> at the yeah. time. Um, and so there's this quote from someone who says, "Mexican culture is so hypocritical. They celebrate and adore Chavela Vajas, but only when she's on stage." 
So mm. only when it's in this performative context, great, love it. I don't think that's like specific to Mexican. No, no, exactly. Though, is it right? Exa- like that no, no, sounds totally. like the tale of every single transgressive woman uh, in history. Totally, totally. We're like, yes, queen, go for it. <laughs> when it's on the screen. But when it comes out of the screen and to our daily life, it's yeah. something else. So that's quite interesting. The other um, thing is uh, Pedro Almodovar appears. He appears a lot towards the end of the film, which reflects his own role in her career. Because late in her career, she she sort of she had all this success and then she sort of disappeared into the alcoholic wilderness for decades, completely vanished from public life, and then she returned, made a bit of a late comeback in her. 70s and 80s and Almodovar was a key player in this uh, comeback soundtracks a lot of his films with her music and toured her through Paris uh, to Paris and like through Europe um, for this like last hurrah grand tour which we see um, footage of which is amazing cool that sounds fantastic yeah it is it's really really interesting and the final thing I would say about it is the filmmakers Catherine Gund and Doresha Key they interviewed or I think Catherine Gund interviewed Shavella Vachas herself about 15 years ago and so there's the film intersperses that footage with uh, she's since passed away with uh, the people in her life sort of fact checking her in a weird way so Shavella <laughs> will like she she likes to sort of build up her legend and you know she's she tells these stories and then we will hear interviews with uh, her girlfriends at the time or you know women she seduced um, including Frida Kahlo. She seduced Frida Kahlo. Uh, yes, uh, many people, you know, her family, they'll sort of say, oh, well, it actually happened like this. So it's a really <laughs> in- complex portrait of this legendary figure whom I knew nothing about going in. And by the end of it, I yeah, I found it really, really worthwhile. Great documentary. Great. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for that recommendation. Awesome. Yep. I have almost nothing to add to this conversation, but there are just a few little curiosities I wanted to, to bring up. One is that I Am Not a Witch, which I believe I was very excited about seeing, has the same cinematographer, David Galeo, or uh, Gallego or something. Excuse my horrific pronunciation. I apologise. We can't all be um, Anders. That's okay. Same <laughs> cinematographer as... Uh, well, he worked on Embrace of the Serpent. Which oh, yeah. I just have to announce here because that was like essential cultural, cultural capital favourite film. Number one film of 2016. Of 2016. Um, so I hope... Awesome. Anyway. You, all you listeners will have already gone out and seen it on based on our recommendation. Mm, I hope yeah, so. <laughs> um, anyway, the sessions are, are getting you know towards the that fully booked. Oh, the stage. selling fast stage. Mm, so anyway, that's a good one. And the other thing. Sorry, that is, was I am not a witch. Right? I am not a witch. Correct. The other thing is I am seeing Spore, which I do recall being excited about seeing, but overlooked when the program was announced which is the new film from Agnieszka Holland, who is a Polish filmmaker. She's almost 70 years old, I think. Anyway, she's pretty well-known as a filmmaker. She made The Secret Garden. She made Secret Garden. Actually, also, this is a little bit of a cinephile's joke. (laughs) She made Olivier Olivier and Europa Europa. Oh, yeah, um, right. (laughs) uh, Rochelle Rochelle. (laughs) Yes. Fuck yeah. Bet me and Aranishka Holland get them in the same room together. <laughs> cool. Anyway, her new film, which is pegged in the MIF program as a feminist ecological thriller that's a little bit surrealist. I'm like, I'm there immediately. Nice. Anyway, <laughs> she's amazing. She's had this like history 
a family history very much entwined with um, the all of the disruption in the Eastern Bloc, and so super interesting. Um, and she also worked with Andre Ryder at the beginning of her career, and his final film after Image is screening um, at MIF, which I'm also seeing. Final film of Andre Ryder and final film of Abbas Kurastami. Mm. Very important f- um, screenings at this frames. festival, I think. Yeah, 24 frames. Anyway, just wanted to like make sure you'll go out and see Anjushka Holland's film. Great, cool. Okay. And can I, sorry, I just want to, do a brief mention of the film I'm very excited about, Railway Sleepers, directed by Sompot Chidgarson Ponks, who is a Thai documentarian um, influenced and mentored by James Benning and Apichat Pong Wira Safikul. And this is an observational documentary about the Thai railways, which looks really great. People yeah, sleeping on trains. It trace. does. It looks excellent. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much for making it to the end of um, episode 31 of Cultural Capital. If you want to rate or review us on iTunes, we'd be very grateful. You can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. You yep. can follow us on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. You can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Anders Furs. And I'm at Eloise Lowe Ross. And we think we're great. Yes, Queen, slay the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs>